The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome back from lunch. So, as you've been reading, as you've been seeing, there are obituaries up. Um, just to get us in the mood for this afternoon for what we'll be doing soon. First, I want to speak a few minutes about what mentioned I mentioned this morning about uh, the misalignment problem, what's called the misalignment problem. Is, this, is the volume still okay? Yes, good. So the misalignment problem, and by the way, I brought a lot of things to write on and when we get to, to writing in a, in a little bit. But so, so being aware that, that we die, that life is impermanent, that there's so many impermanent aspects to life, so many losses, ends of chapters, um, Transitions, different transitions, different aspects of our life that we transition in and out, and life and and death is the is a major transition. Is the end of this chapter of us being human in this life, living as we know it in this body. So one one way that death contemplation can serve us there are four actually there are four different ways that it can serve us um, one way death contemplation can serve us yeah actually let me touch into that first um, the one way it can serve us is as we've been touching into subtly is is accepting and making peace with death as a natural um, aspect of life just the same way that it's part of nature for leaves to grow, become green, and then fall off the tree. It's part of nature. It's also part of nature for us to be born and, and to die. It's nature. And so to make peace with our death as part of nature, and another aspect is to make peace with other people's death people that we care about, people that we love, we don't want to lose, uh, we don't want to say goodbye, to accept their, their departure um, as, as that, that their death, their, their passing as, as part of this natural coming and going. Of course, this can be complicated in so many ways, because if, you know, our loved ones live to a ripe old age of you know, 80 or 90, it might be easier to say goodbye to them. But if if they die from a, an accident or, or an illness at a young age, um, there can be a lot of complicated relationships, complicated emotions that come up. Um, with the respect to suicide also, if our loved one departed this world through suicide, there are a lot of complicated emotions that come up. Um, Basically, the emotions that, that we talked about this morning in terms of denial, anger, rage, you know, it's, it's the same, in some ways it's the same 
um, emotions, but a lot more intense, a lot more in the soup, a lot more anger, a lot more feeling of betrayal, perhaps, or or feeling of guilt of not having done anything, etc. So, so all of these, I think these various emotions are present as reactions to death, no matter what. But when death is complicated, when the circumstances have been complicated, it seems untimely, either through through suicide or or through violence, um, it can be a lot more intense, a lot of more of these ingredients, really um, a lot more fire and just a lot more for us to work with and make peace with. It makes it more, more intense, more demanding practice. And it's still, it's still privy to the same laws, to same, to the same way that we, we practice with anything else, with wisdom, with compassion for ourselves and others. And with inviting as much equanimity and understanding as much as possible. So, so accepting, making peace with death um, of loved ones, making peace with our own death, which can be a profound gift both to ourselves and a profound gift to others. If, if we have made peace with our passing, um, whether it's timely or untimely, if it's communicated to people who are around us and when the time comes, it gives them so much peace to know that at least we had made peace with it. It's a huge gift that we can share with others, um, especially if you're parents, if you have children. It can be a huge gift to your children um, if you have made peace with your with your passing, um, can be a tremendous gift that you can pass da- pass down. And really, it's it's living through example, living through example. The other couple of gifts, the other couple of fruits of death contemplation practice, I would say the third gift, the third fruit, is awakening to life, living life a lot more fully and addressing what's called the misalignment problem, engaging with what is important. Um, I remember from the book of Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and it's very common in in time management where you create a quadrant uh, of, of what you do in life. Everything you do in life along two axes, orthogonal axes, what's important and what's urgent. So number one, you want to tend to what's both important and urgent. And then you want to attend to what's important but not urgent. And often, usually, what's important and not urgent, we, we kind of put off, we put off, we never get to it. Instead, we go to number three, which are things that are urgent but not important. We often do those. And worse yet, we attend to the fourth quadrant the most sometimes, wasting time with what's not important and not urgent. Like watching a repeat episode of something for the twelfth time. Not urgent, not important. We all do that. So by bringing this understanding this appreciation of limitedness of time 
we feel, we feel the value more uh, urgently, the value of limited time that we have. So, so the third um, that I'll talk more in, uh, in a moment about this, this awakening to life, living for mo- more fully, li- engaging with what's important. And the fourth aspect, the fourth fruit of death contemplation, which I'll speak about later today, maybe the second part of afternoon, is actually death contemplation can be um, a gift, a a way to actually reach awakening, um, freedom, nibbana, whatever word you want to, to put on it, liberation, where it can actually help us uh, with cultivating wisdom and compassion as we realize, as we, um, as we see the ultimate letting go, as we make peace with the ultimate letting go of life. It's a, it, and in the moment of death itself can be a moment of letting go into the deathless, into Nibbana. So, pr- so preparing for that moment and in the process Letting go, letting go, letting go of what we hold on to, the grudges that we hold on to, the, the, se- the sense of self that we hold on to. Letting go, letting go, letting go some more. And emptying, really emptying into the emptiness. So it is in itself a worthy practice. It's a practice along this, um, in this tradition for waking up, for more freedom, for liberation, awakening, nibbana. So there is so much, so many perspectives, so many aspects that, that, again, a day really is not enough. This is a lifetime. This is the practice of a lifetime. So just touching into a few of these aspects and perspectives today. So I'd like to speak now about the third aspect that I raised, which is death and, and not aligning our life, bringing more alignment, bringing more intentionality for us to live according to our true values in terms of our ethics, um, what's essential, what's really important, not just urgent, term and, and prioritizing what's really, truly important. So, so I like to draw um, the next section from an article that showed up in January 9th of 2016. So nine days after the New Year's, 2016. So you can just get a sense that people are in the, you know, when you read the New York Times, like a couple of weeks after the New Year, you're still, you know, the sense of New Year, um, that's freshness. So the title of this article, written by Arthur C. Brooks, was To Be Happier, Start thinking more about your death. I think that's a pretty catchy title, right? But you don't expect to be happier, comma, start thinking more about your death. Do you? You don't quite expect that, right? By surprise, it's actually a way to become happier, to think about more about your death. So in this article, I pointed out a few interesting things. One is um, that... Um, these various studies, there's one study by uh, an article that was published in 2004 um, 
by um, a team of scholars, including the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, who surveyed a group of women and asked them how much satisfaction they derived in, da- in their daily activities. So among voluntary activities, again, voluntary activities, not work, right? Voluntary, things that they choose to do. You would probably expect that the, the choice people make would roughly align with the level of satisfaction that they draw, right? So if you choose to do something, you probably think that it makes you happy, right? Because you're choosing to do it in your free time, right? Yeah, logical? Sure, okay. Not so. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty wild. So what they found um, is that more women reported deriving satisfaction from prayer, worship, and meditation than watching television. Yet... The average respondent spent more than five times as long watching television as engaging in spiritual activities. Pretty wild, no? But but wait, it doesn't end there. And by the way, don't think, oh, it's them. No, this is us, right? This is us. Do you do you see yourself? Recognize yourself in it? Thank you for nodding. Yes. Yes, we recognize ourselves. And so, if anything, this study actually underestimated the, the misalignment problem. Five times is a mis, 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 an understatement. So, it turns out that there is such a thing called the American Time Use Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, your tax dollars at work. This is great. It shows that there was a study in 2014 that it showed that average American adults spent four times longer watching television than socializing and communicating. Okay? Four times longer watching TV than socializing, communicating, and 20 times longer on TV than other religious or spiritual activities. So not five, but 20 times longer. Wow. Wow. And the survey at that time did not happen to ask about surfing the web, but you can imagine what that would be like, right? Spending a lot more time. Now I, for one, spend a lot more time on my computer surfing the web and comparative shopping and, and you know, watching TV, but yes, guilty as charged. So, so, so it's interesting to realize that, right? Reading and also maybe even if you took care, to you, you um, paid attention in your own life, how much time you spend every day in these activities and how much satisfaction they each give you. But the interesting thing is that the secret or the solution is not to simply create a resolution to stop wasting time or stop watching TV. Like how many resolutions have we made and have we not kept, right? It tends not to work. But what does work, what does work is finding a system, systematic way to raise the scarcity of time to your consciousness. When you're systematically raised, that time is scarce, it's short, 
you actually do that, then then you don't want to spend waste time. You don't want to waste time, right? Because it's just clear, like it, it's just stupid. It's a way I don't want to do this. It's not like oh, you shouldn't because you made a resolution on January first not to waste time. Oh, just a little bit, maybe a little bit, right? It's not a should because resolutions create a sense of should, like shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Whereas this feeling of urgency when you bring this the the limitedness of time to really in front of you in in your consciousness it becomes large and present like you don't want to waste time it's not like you're making yourself like you're chastising yourself you don't even want to turn on the tv or do whatever on the computer it just like makes no sense you see the difference yeah so so in Buddhism, also this, this raising awareness about limitedness of time, it has a name. It's called samvega. Samvega is translated as spiritual urgency, where you realize time is so short. It's so limited. The Buddha says when you have samvega, you, you practice as if your hair is on fire. That sense of urgency, like why your hair is on fire. Sam Harris says in um, in Death and the Present Moment, I like these couple of paragraphs I'd like to share with you. Most of us do our best to not think about death, but there is always part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we have wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time. It's not just that we spent too much time working or compulsively checking email. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this, and yet you're like most people. You will spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you live forever. Like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. I love the last line. These things only make sense in light of eternity. If we had eternal life, then it would make sense doing what we do. We habitually do. It makes no sense.
And to add a couple of things that, you know, death contemplation doesn't make you serious and doesn't kill your joy. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Because when you realize time is limited, not only will it help align you with, with your true highest values and ideals and not wasting precious time, but also there is a research showing that it loosens something in you, that humor comes in, more joy comes in, more ease comes in. So there is a study, I want to share this with you, this is pretty awesome. Uh, there was a study pr- um, pr- proposing that actually not only death does not make you grim and serious, in fact, there is evidence that death contemplation makes you funnier. So two scholars in 2013 uh, published a uh, academic paper where they um, primed people. When they primed people... Uh, two groups. They primed them to think about death. One group was primed to think about death. The other group was primed, group of subjects, was primed to think about pain. I forget if they had to read about pain or write about pain, but that was the priming, kind of like bring it to their consciousness. Pain versus death, okay? You can think of, yeah, both sound pretty serious and morbid, okay, it's pretty painful topics, right? Okay, right. Then this is what they did afterwards. This is the fun part. So then they took um, these. Um, they took a bunch of um, cartoons without caption. I don't know if you've seen the last page of New Yorker. There's often a you know New Yorker cartoon without a caption, and and you can send in a, a suggestion into New Yorker, and the best one gets selected, and there's a competition fun okay they did something like that but so they so the people who were primed to either think about death or pain they gave them captionless cartoons for them to write captions so they they did a bunch of that they wrote captions okay all right thank you subjects left and then they took these cartoons and their captions and they showed them to a new group of subjects a new group of unsuspecting subjects who didn't know anything about what had happened, right? And asked them to rate, asked them to rate these captions in terms of how funny they are, right? So they're just rating from one to ten, funny, not funny, really funny, not too funny, right? Okay. It turns out that the people who were primed to think about death, their captions were funnier, who would have thought? Right? Interesting. But actually, it's not too surprising when you really, really think about it deeply because there's something about death, about letting go, about contemplating that, that it loosens something in you. It loosens something in your psyche. It lets go. It's because lack of funniness is this contraction. When you don't laugh, when you're not funny, there's a contraction. Like you're so serious. Right? When you're kind of like, when you're relaxed, have you noticed everything is funny? Like you laugh more easily at the jokes of your friends when you're more relaxed, when you're at peace, when you have more ease. Right? It loosens something. 
So contemplating death actually, that, that, that peace that it creates, that alignment that it creates, yeah, death, yeah, yeah, can make peace with it, it's cool, yeah. It loosens something instead of that fear, that tightness that can be there, that terror management that can be there. So, so don't be afraid. You are not going to get serious and humorless. Um, and of course, always check in with your attitude. As I, as I was sharing this morning, it's not just what the thing is, whatever object, but your attitude, your relationship, always have a question mark, big question mark about the attitude and relationship that, that you're having, which is personal to you, and be curious about it. Really? Oh, I'm getting serious and humorless. Why is that so? Does it have to be this way? What's happening right now? What's happening here? Don't take it, don't take it as the truth of the world, like this is it. No, have, have curiosity about it. I also want to bring in another perspective, another aspect, which is which is actually death gives life meaning. If there was no passing, if there was no going away, if, um, if we lived forever, there would be little um, motivation to do anything because there would be time. Oh, there would be time. I forget, I think there was this... this this fiction story, um, I heard about it, but I don't have the reference to it, so to, to tell you exactly where it came from. But it was a f- fictional story, kind of a sci- sci-fi story of, of um, this, this culture where they lived infinitely and nothing got done. It was a state of disarray and, and people were just like languishing. Oh, there, there is time. We'll clean that. We'll fix that. Oh, there will be time. There will be time. So not to say that that's necessarily the case, but just presenting that as a consideration of, of it's this limitedness of time that can propel us to, to contribute and be the best that we can be in this limited, precious life. Oh, and also someone during the break reminded me of the piece I was missing with the the Buddhist um, perception, Buddhist um, story about um, how precious, how rare and precious human birth is uh, with the turtle. So the idea, so the part I was missing is, is it was, was a ring or a hula hoop on top of the ocean. So imagine that the... Um, the um, turtle is swimming underwater. This giant turtle is swimming underwater. And every eon, it comes up for air. And imagine there is a ring, a hula hoop on, t- on top of the ocean. So the chance, and so every, so every eon when this turtle comes up, if it happens, if it happens per chance to come through the, 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 um, uh, the hula hoop, the ring, that's the, prob- that's the probability of us having a precious human birth. Because this ring can be anywhere in the ocean, right? And every eon, you get it, right? It's kind of like very rare to have a precious human birth. Okay, but, but thank you for reminding me of what the, uh, what the full simile is. It's a pretty fun simile. It makes your jaw drop. 
Um, so, so another thing I want to, to present for your consideration is that uh, in terms of death giving life meaning is um, what's called the tedium of immortality. And I had never considered the tedium of immortality. Um, the first time it hit me was years ago um, when I was um, uh, presented with this this um, this opera. Um, you know, art usually kind of like shakes you in ways that sometimes other things don't shake you. So in this case, it was it was the opera by Janacek, the Czech composer, and it's called the Markopolis case. So the story in this opera is that um, there is a 327-year-old woman who looks 27. Um, so, and she has been living uh, for about you know 327 years, um, and the story is that um, she. Um, her, her father was the doctor to a king somewhere, and and her father created a, a potion of immortality, and this potion allowed you to live for three hundred years. And the the king um, sa- said, "Hey, I'm not going to take this potion. You should test it on your daughter first, and if she's okay, then I will take it." So the daughter being this woman, now 327 years old. You, you kind of see where this is going. Okay, so, so the girl, the young girl, is given the potion. She drinks it, and she passes out for three days. And in those three days, her father gets executed by the king, saying, what the heck did you make? You know, this isn't working. And then the girl wakes up and then lives for 300 years um, under many different names under the same initials but going to different countries and having different um, husbands and children and just living and living and living so many lives so many lives over and over and over again and then we meet at this story we meet her when she's come back to find to desperately find the recipe because after uh, almost 300 years um the potion is losing its its effect, so she's starting to feel weak and she's starting to die. So she goes through all kinds of um, machinations to to seduce and steal, and I'll I'll save you the the samsaric nature of it. That uh, she finally gets a hold towards the end of this this piece, she gets a hold of this recipe. She's got it. She has it. Now she can make the recipe again and live another 300, li- uh, 300 years. And then what happens is she realizes she's tired of living, tedium of immortality, like loving and losing and doing this again and again, the samsaric nature of it, the suffering, just over and over and over again which is, was a really interesting perspective for me to consider. And here is what she sings. I'll, I'll share a couple of um, the, po- the poetry of it. She says, It's a great mistake to live so long. Oh, if you could only know 
how easy your life how easy life is for you you are so close to life you see in life some meaning life has for you some value fools how happy you are it's a very interesting perspective that death though you fools who are dying life is precious to you you're intimate with life it's precious for you for me it's lost its value it's just like ugh, this tired thing this tired cloak i wear every day she continues fools how happy you all are and it's due to the paltry chance that you will all die soon you believe in mankind love virtue progress there's nothing more that you can want but f- but in me life has become to a standstill i can i cannot go on how dreadful this loneliness in the end it's the same singing and silence there is no joy in goodness there's no joy in evil joyless in the earth joyless in the sky and she gives it away she gives the recipe away so just to present to you this perspective that for me was new i had never thought about it always you know read about the potion of immortality as this amazing thing people were looking for but what if you had it what if it's actually as mortal humans it's a gift not to live infinitely and lose and keep losing so Pause for a moment. Okay. So where I would like to invite us to go next is is writing our own obituaries. It I've done it many times. and it's a very rich experience every single time because i'm in a different place and different insights arise so basically i'll give um some some guidance so so imagine all of us sitting here today that there is a giant flaming asteroid coming towards the air, earth right now and we just got notified by nasa we have about 20 30 minutes left until it hits the earth and none of you none of us are getting out alive i'm sorry this is it our time is up so knowing that with this sense let us write our obituary what is the life that we lived and i invite for you to write your obituary in any way that works for you speaks to you i like to give you a lot of freedom 
So some of the obituaries that you might have read or you read in the paper, they might you know, espouse and highlight the accomplishments and uh, you know this and that and awards. And if that is, speaks to you, feel free to do that. You don't have to, okay? It could also be a very personal obituary, right? Like what mattered to you? Who were you? Who was this person who lived and loved and lost, right? So it could be a more personal version, necessarily, not necessarily what would show up in the New York Times obituary page. If you like to write a New York Times version, please feel welcome. If you like to write a more personal one, right, for your own sake, as for your, your own reflection, for as, as a note, as a letter, as a, for people who loved you and, and knew you, perhaps, or didn't. So you can do it that way, too. Or it could be a mix. You can start writing a personal one, and then maybe you'll become a New York Times one. Or you start writing a New York Times one, and it's like, oh, I care more about this. So, so feel free to, to write whichever way works for you. There are no shoulds. Does this make sense? Okay. And, and if it's too confusing, start with one frame. Start with what you know and start writing to, and see where you end up. If the, you know, what you've seen on the walls, if the just birth date or, and, you know, when, when the person died, how many siblings, who's, le- who's, you know, if that's the place to start, start there and see where you end up, how you want, what you want to write in it more. And again, let yourself be surprised. Any questions about the directions? Anything you're confused about or would be helpful to clarify? Clear? You know what you're doing? Feel, feels good? Okay, at least the instructions feel good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, let's not waste time. The asteroid is coming. Um, so there, there is paper, pens, and books for underneath. So please feel free to help yourself. And we'll have about, I don't know, maybe, um, tw- I would say 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and I'll, I'll feel the room to see how it feels. Let's say 20 and I'll feel the room. Are you going to read them out loud afterwards? Um, let me think about this for a moment. Um, I've done it both ways, actually. I've done it both ways, and both are helpful. Um, let's not today, like, given the limited time we have, let's. Is there anyone who needs more time for their obituary? All good? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, great. Okay. So, what was it like for you to write this? What did you discover or observe? What became clear to you, perhaps? What surprised you? be a range of reactions and answers. And again, I'd like to invite those who haven't spoken 
in the group yet to please put your voices in the room. Shy ones, don't be shy. Yes, please, Mike is coming your way. And please hold it close. This, <coughs> this is really short. And over closer. I discovered... Oh, I, wait. Can I just pull this? Yes, perfect, yeah. This is going to be short. I discovered that my whole life I've wanted to be good. There was a whole list, good student, good daughter, good, and it went on and on and on. And um, there was another, oh, and that I love just about everything that can be loved. Mm. And even things that can't be loved, I probably, I do love that too. That's what I discovered. Nice. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Over there? Are you kind of inkling towards the mic? No? No? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess <laughs> So picking up on um, kind of themes, I, uh, for me... Um, Hold it like this. Talking about... Um, there, yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> uh, love, I mean, that was the first thing that, that uh, focused on family. Um, for me, personally, I felt like, you know, this... this I think I've heard once that Freud said what's important is love and work. And I, I think the piece of the work, I, I think I struggle with that in terms of finding meaning in that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what to do about that. Mm. So that's what came up for me. Nice. Thank you. Um, I just uh, recently, uh, my father passed. And so just within the last month, went through the process of, with my family, of writing his obituary. Mm. And it was a um, very helpful exercise for our family to help us in the process of um, of, of um, dealing with his passing to, instead of, it, it helped to broaden our frame of reference from the, the sadness of, of his struggles at the end to thinking about the full 90 years of his life and all the adventures he had. And, um, and so I've, I approached writing this obituary in kind of a similar style. It was fairly factual. And, um, I, I had, I have had some concerns that I had let work dominate the past 20 years of my life so I created a total life change in the last year mm-hmm. and so I was writing I started the whole beginning it was like blah 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 she did this work 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 and I was thinking oh my god the obituary is reflecting <laughs> this imbalance that I felt I had mm-hmm. in my life mm-hmm. um, but then I sort of started telling the rest of the story and mm-hmm. found that there was lots of adventure and embrace of delightful things and that hopefully if this if we did have the asteroid in 20 minutes, mm. um, this sort of significant change of direction, even in the past year, has sort of just created the uh, the a happier ending to the story mm. than I would have had before. Mm. <laughs> so I find that the writing this now is um, I f- I feel happy about the story that's there, whereas a year or two earlier 
I might have felt that I was still struggling to create the fuller, more complete life that I had wished. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I love hearing this this process, right? Being a different part of the process. Had, had you come into IMC a couple of years ago, it would have been a different place. And to realize you, everyone, were, all, were on this process and the different curves, at different points of the process at different times. Um, and there are times that, ah, oh, there's a sense of satisfaction. And there's this t- there are times that there's a sense of, I don't quite know. I, I know this is not the direction I want to go. And there's not quite peace with, say, you know, the previous per- person who was sharing, you know, not quite peace with work, love, how. Like, great. It's all great. It's all great. Bringing awareness to it is really great because when there is awareness, that's when shifts uh, start to happen when change starts to be invited in when you start to shine the light and we're all at different points on this path and this process right now so I'm really appreciating everything that's coming in from all of these different parts it's all um, yeah bringing awareness to it so thank you thank you all other other realizations are It was interesting to realize that um, like if I was dying now um, and looking at, I feel like I actually had a meaningful life. Um, And I had before the feeling that, oh, I wanted to accomplish all those other things, which, you know, may happen. But um, just feeling, oh... (coughs) Um, meaningful uh, my life has been it's good lovely thank you for sharing that it's a lovely realization right there's always more to do and accomplish and and this drive and also just have a feeling ah hmm kind of sense of peace sense of contentment thank you Lovely. Uh, well, I started off with saying that uh, she was known by her name, Janetti, uh, and uh, then the, but the desire to not be known as her name, but rather no name. Mm. And uh, the way that uh, my name and then all of the other titles, mother, etc., is so limiting. Mm. And with such a short time to be uh, left, um, how uh, just the reflection on all these ways that I, I... kind of confine myself with the shoulds and expectations and the demands, uh, the, the definitions of it all, and the way that that is used to escape kind of the, uh, the abyss. Mm. And then in getting into the abyss, it's like, wow, but the abyss is really the is-ness. Mm. And uh, mm. 
the uh, freedom mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. just the the not knowing and yeah. uh, seeing how so much of my life is drawn to looking for the answers. Yeah. And so uh, I've really gotten in touch with just this whole thing of curiosity. And I uh, will end up being really tired when I meditate. And today I've felt this like just this wave of tiredness and then using that wave to pick up on the wave of awakeness. Nice. And um, so... Um, uh, sort of ending the uh, what I was writing with you know kind of what you were saying with the joys and the sorrows and that in every moment it's like life and death and life and death mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to and the fact that there is no choice mm-hmm. <laughs> in it mm-hmm. it's just being in that uh, isness and the curiosity of, of the isness lovely Thank you so much, and so many themes you've brought in. A couple I'd like to 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 highlight. Um, one is um, like every moment there's a being born and and dying. Every moment, right? Every moment is being born and is dying at the same time. This moment, gone, gone, gone. That moment is gone, 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 die, 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 die. Oh, and it's being born. It's just—it's fresh. It's spring every moment, and it's fall every moment. So I—I I love that you're pointing to that, in in the wakefulness and sleepiness and the birth and death right here, right now, in every moment. It's right here, pointing to, and the and um, through all the labels, through the expectations, through the shoulds. Um, trying to run away from the unknown, right? Trying to, to define oneself. And then realizing that actually resting in the unknown, in the abyss, ah, that's where it's really the juiciest. It's where there's so much possibility and ease in the not knowing and being curious about it all. And I appreciate that theme because that, is the next theme I want to explore and bring into the room and, and explore with everyone. So thanks for uh, bringing that already. It's a perfect segue. Yeah. So any other reflections, things you realize? Yes, please. As I um, began to write, <clears throat> I wondered who would be reading it and it occurred to me that it would be the people who cared about me mm. would trouble to turn to that page in the paper. Mm. So um, I thought I would, well, with that in mind, I, I realized um, how grateful I was that they cared about me. Mm. And uh, so I sort of mm. focused my text on how fortunate I was in that regard, and you know, in family life and career and, you know, the, op- the privilege of being close to some people. Mm. And I thought, well, a lot of good obituaries have something about the person's final days. And, and I kind of took literally the prompt, and I thought, wow, if, if it really was an asteroid strike, <clears throat> there would be lots of other people knowing, too, that they had just a few minutes to live. And I had a feeling we might get come together 
in a very satisfying way. Mm. So it was a, a communal experience nice. of coming to peace. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. And, and you know, IMC would not be a bad place to pass, <laughs> to come to that communal peace. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else that came up for you, maybe surprised you as you wrote your own obituary up here? I just thought it was interesting um, to write in the third person. Kind of like it helped me distance myself from myself, like to see myself from a different perspective Mm -hmm. and like not take everything so serious or literal Mm -hmm. and like be okay with with the shortcomings of myself and just like like make peace with the conflicts of who I was mm-hmm. or who I am. And it was like, like I could, I guess it helped me um, find the humor in, in the shortcomings. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. I appreciate that oh, very much. And in the past when... Um, I've invited people to do this exercise. There have been others who uh, wrote about their shortcomings and just uh, finding humor in them and just really embracing the shortcomings from that perspective of the obituary, not from the usual habitual pattern of of self-degradation or self-judgment. It's like, oh yeah, these are the things that the, that this dear person struggled with and just, you know, um, so I appreciate you bringing that in because that's, that's being human, right? That's keeping it real. We all have our struggles in different ways. Um, there's no perfection and there's perfection in the imperfection and embracing the imperfection and not shying away from it, befriending it. I appreciate hearing how this brought that about for you. Lovely. Yeah, nice. So, let's see. Oh, yes. The um, asteroid hit. And now... We're going to explore explore the unknown. So the unknown. As a way to frame our next exploration to the unknown, the not knowing, the not knowing aspect, I'd like to share something from, from Sam Harris again about the don't know mind, which, which the... Um, Zen, Korean Zen teacher San Sanim was famous for saying, don't know, don't know. When, whenever people asked him questions, he would say, don't know. So the don't know mind, don't know. So here's from Sam Harris. We just don't teach people how to grieve. You know, religion is the epitome, the 
antithesis of teaching your children how to grieve. You tell your child that grandma is in heaven and there's nothing to be sad about. That's religion. It, by the way, Sam Harris is very opinionated, so for, please, apologies if this tri- if if doesn't, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. There, I'm trying to get to the part that I really want to share with you. Hold on. So just... Um, so where was... Okay, so that's religion. It would be better to equip your child for for the reality of this life, which is, you know, death is a fact. And we don't know what happens after death. And I'm not pretending to know that you get a dial tone after death. I don't know what happens after the physical brain dies. I don't know what the relationship between consciousness and the physical world is. I don't think anyone does know. Now, I think there are many reasons to be doubtful of naive conceptions about the soul and about the idea that you could just migrate to a better place after death. But I simply know about what? I don't know what I believe about death. And I think it's necessary to know in order to live as sanely and ethically and happily as possible I don't think you, uh, let's see, you, you don't get anything worth getting by pretending to know things you don't know. Putting in a very Sam Harris way. Um, so embracing, appreciating that in order to live an ethical and happy life, you don't need to know. You need to. You don't need to make assumptions about something that you don't know. So, so embracing, making peace with not knowing, with the not, with the don't know mind. So that's what I like to invite us to explore next. This, the don't know mind, the don't know. So, so for this. This exploration, the form I would like to invite us to engage in is um, is a form borrowed from um, uh, from diamond approach and it's a form of it's a very actually um, formal restrictive form of a of an interaction it's called a repeating question so the repeating question. Um, how many people are familiar with repeating question? How many people this is completely new for? Okay, great. So the format of a repeating question is um, there is a particular question that's going to be asked. So one person asks it. Another person provide, uh, allows the question to be dropped, really dropped, and see what comes up instead of trying to answer it from your head or thinking about it, just dropping in and seeing what comes up and letting yourself be surprised. Um, Sometimes, in some turns, no answer might come up, and you might say, I'm drawing a blank. Nothing comes up, okay? And the person who's asking the question, your partner, will say, thank you. So everything, so basically you ask the question, person A asks the question, person B says something, Person A says, thank you, in order to complete this, tra- this turn, and then they ask the question again. Okay? 
So the question we're going to start with, and then after this will go on for a few minutes, and after it's finished, uh, the person who was answering will ask, the person who was um, asking will answer. Again, for another few minutes, which I will time. So, so the first question um, that actually, let me make sure I get the text of the question just right, because. It's important how it is asked. Let's see. Here we go. Where do I have it? Hmm. Might have to search some more. So let me actually tell you. Um, oh, here it is. Oh, yes, here it is. Um, the question is, tell me a way you experience not knowing. And if you can write it down, that would be good to get the, the text just right. Uh, tell me a way you experience not knowing. Tell me a way you experience not knowing, okay? So the way this will be set up is person A will be asking, okay? Here I have my hand puppets. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. Okay. Person B says, you know, allows the question to be dropped. Hmm. I experience it as uncertainty. Thank you. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. Hmm. I experience not knowing as an opening. Thank you. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. Mm. I'm drawing a blank. Thank you. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. This question is driving me nuts. Thank you. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. Ah, I feel like I drop in more deeply when I l- sit when I sit with not knowing. Thank you. Tell me a way you experience not knowing. Okay, you get the picture, right? So the times that you feel like you've kind of like, you've said everything you could possibly say, and you just like want to like, oh, enough of this, like hang in there. Because that's usually when we're, we're starting to kind of go under what the defenses are, our own defenses of not re, uh, um, not, um, seeing more deeply so actually this this repeating question it helps us go more deeply than all the answers that are easy because at some point you start to the answers that come up kind of surprise you like wow i didn't realize this is how i experience not knowing it starts to become surprising for you and a very interesting interactive exercise again this is for you the other person asking the question that's all they do they're not saying yes no aha uh-huh, me too just like thank you tell me a way you experience not knowing thank you tell me a way you experience not knowing they're just dropping it in bringing in the question is that clear any questions about the format especially for those of you who've never experienced it It's a very controlled format. And then after a few minutes, I'll time you. I'll tell you, 
I'll, we'll pause again. We'll close our eyes. Just kind of feel like what is coming up. Um, and then we'll switch. And uh, there are two more questions in this that I will share with you. Okay? So if you came here with someone, I suggest you work with someone you don't know. And it's, again, best either you're on a chair or on the floor, same level. And you could take chairs out there if you wanted to. So, um, and yeah, and work with someone you have not worked before. Taking a pause, closing your eyes, just feeling into your body what it feels right now. Just really tuning in what it feels right now, whether you were listening or sharing. About how you experience not knowing. What it brings up for you. Whatever it is, whether or not you like it, to make space for it. It's a human experience. Recognizing this is your reaction to not knowing. This is how you react. Interesting. Making space, befriending, whether or not you like it. So now we move to the next question. Before you open your eyes, I'm going to share the question with you. What's right about not knowing? What's right about not knowing? This will challenge you to drop in more, this question. What's right about not knowing? And opening your eyes and... and, um, Again, going person A again, the per- first person who was asking, will ask the question, what's right about not knowing? And then thank you. Just really allow yourself to open to this. Allow yourself to be curious and go past your usual assumptions, like not knowing is bad. Really? What's right about not knowing? Let yourself be surprised. What's right about not knowing? What's good about not knowing? What's right about not knowing? Not being the expert. Not being the know-it-all. What's right about not knowing? So please start. Pause again, taking a pause again, with your eyes closed again, just reflecting internally what's coming up after exploring this question, both sides, both of you, having both asked and reflected, what's right about not knowing in general? What's right about not knowing? Just feeling what's coming up, what comes up in your body, just noticing the sensations that come up in your body, acknowledging and making space for whatever there is, the field of not knowing. And the last question that we'll explore together. Tell me something you don't know about death. Some, tell me something you don't know about death. And again, the first person who is asking will ask and then we'll switch. Tell me something you don't know. 
about death. And again, remember this repeating question format is intended to support you to go more deeply into areas that may not be first visible to you or more not so comfortable at first, but gently to drop in more and more. So don't stay on the surface. Allow yourself to go in more deeply. Tell me something you don't know about death. Please start. So, um, just a couple of comments, actually. I'd like to invite a couple of comments, especially if you haven't spoken yet, about what this process was like for you, exploring not knowing, exploring not knowing, the different aspects of not knowing. What was it like? What did you discover? Yes. Um, I like these three questions a lot and um, really, really helpful, like almost better than any therapy, <laughs> therapy session I have experienced. And I, um, I discovered a lot about myself. Um, for example, the one about not knowing. I've learned that I'm just completely an anxious person and mm. I don't let it go. And you just keep probing on everything. So I, I think this is very, very helpful. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Maybe one more comment, please, back here. It's a mic went up there. You can hold on to it. Yeah. Please. Oh, it may be off, so you may need to press it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I think I realized a couple things. One, the last year, I've been sitting with a lot of not knowing and feeling kind of crazy-making. I don't know, I don't know, as if that's a bad thing. And I realized we don't know every day right. what's going to happen anyway. Right. right so on. in a way, it felt more peaceful. Yeah. And the other thing I realized, some of the issues that I don't know, I've created kind of a story that is sad. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's going to be that way. Right. I know that things are going to happen. They're going to, um, what's the word, you know, kind of carry forward in a certain way. Yeah. And I need to be prepared. But I realize I've created a scenario that may or may not happen that way. Right. And then I've been feeling a lot of grief based on right. that right. story. Yeah. Not on the unknown, which I don't know is going to happen. Right. So it was very uh, awakening for me to see that these stories are running my life in a way. So thank you. Nice. Thank you. Because really, just as you point out, we just don't know. We really just don't know. We don't know every day. We have no idea what happens there. You know, you had no idea this morning when you woke up what the arc of this day long was going to be like, right? Or what you would be doing, what you would be saying, what would happen. There's so much we don't know. And there's so much freedom and possibility in not knowing. It's actually quite lovely to rest in that 
space, the state of not, not knowing, the mystery. Yeah, lovely. I love this exercise, by the way. When I've done it myself, I've just loved it every time. So, last, yeah, last one. Is, did you raise your hand? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> um, I found it really helpful to, and really interesting to do the, the sequence of yeah. three. Yeah. Because um, I was answering the first two in very generic terms. Yeah. But then when we got to the last one, I could refer to either noticing how something that I didn't know about death made me feel. Right. Whether it was liberating or anxious or um, whatever that might be, yeah, and and then also, in some cases, noticing that there was it was good to not know that thing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so it was really nice to have that reference right. point. Right. So thank you. Nice. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. So, so given the limited time we have, and one thing that I definitely want to share with you today, that there's so much to cover in this area, but something I definitely want to, to bring in and share with you before we close today is um, are a couple of pl- practices with death contemplation in Buddhism. Um, and there is a... Pr- um, one is quickly I'll share with you. The other one I'll explain and then lead you in a short guided meditation, which is, that's the kind of the primary practice of um, death contemplation. So one to just share with you quickly is, is um, actually, no, I'm going to reverse the order. I'm just going to tell about the primary one, the important one, doing the, the urgent and the important first. Okay, the urgent and the important first. Urgent and important first is um, this practice of that the Buddha taught that basically he taught it in the sutta as this could be my last breath. Really practicing with that as a formal practice when you're sitting on the cushion and meditating with every breath, every breath, this could be my last breath. And doing that practice for a while, I've done that for a long time in it really brings the immediacy and the intimacy of death. And it can also at times bring up a sense of terror, speaking of terror management. You know, you might be, for me, I'll share my practice. I was practicing, like, this could be my blast, blast breath, in, out. Yeah, yeah, I know, this could be my last breath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, this could be my last breath. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally chilled with it. I'm totally comfortable. And then all of a sudden, it would just kind of hit something. <gasps> This could be my last breath. This could be my last breath. Oh my goodness. So the kind of like would tap into the, this layers, the layers of fear and terror and it would come up and I would sit with it and I would let it kind of go through me. Ah, and there would be more peace. Like, oh yeah, this could be my last breath. Because the first piece maybe was kind of just like not really being in touch with it. It was kind of like just checking out. And then there would be really more peace with it. Yeah, this could be my last breath. And I really am okay with it. And then it would go deeper. And then at some point it would tie, it would again tap into, this could be my last breath. More terror would come up and then making space for it, sitting with it, allowing these waves to pass. So this can be a, 
a process in this practice. And you could be anywhere in the practice. It could be like, oh, yeah, I got it. This is an easy practice. What's she talking about? Like then all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, this is what she's talking about. This could be my last breath. So wherever in this course you are, be patient and just hang in there. This is a practice that can build up. But I definitely do want to teach it to you so that you have it in your arsenal, in your toolkit, in your practice toolkit. Um, when you sit every day, if you choose to do this, either for a few minutes as your, or as primary practice some days, just to really um, explore it. So, so I'll lead you through it. So I ask you to get into your meditation posture. <sighs> settling, feeling comfortable. Where are you sitting? Settling into the body, landing in the body. <coughs> Allowing the breath to move in and out of your body, just as it does. It's not so much that you're breathing, the breath breathes itself. In breath, the out breath. Now, as you notice your breath, as you notice this in breath, just, just this in breath. Just this out-breath. The intimacy of this in-breath and this out-breath. Realizing that this could be your last breath. This could be your last breath. And the last breath you will take someday would be very similar to this one. This, this breath right here, this in-breath, this out-breath. could also be thought of as a stand-in, as very similar as a stand-in for your last breath. Your last breath might be longer, shallower, but in general, it's still your in-breath, your out-breath in this body. And certainly, this breath is one breath closer to your death. One breath closer to your last breath. You are getting one breath closer to your last breath. There is no doubt about that. And with every in-breath, 
allowing there to be more wakefulness, more alertness. And this could be my last breath, this awareness. This could be the last in-breath, the last time breath is pulled into these lungs. And with every out-breath, relaxing, letting go, letting go more, letting go. Relaxing, as if this were your last out-breath and no more air would ever come in. If you find there's not enough intimacy yet with this practice, one thing you can do, if there's not enough urgency felt, something you could do is to put more emphasis on the sense of urgency, both on the in-breath and the out-breath. That this is my last in-breath leaning more towards the urgency. And if you find yourself becoming too agitated, so agitated that you can't really connect peacefully to the practice, then put more emphasis on the letting go and the relaxation and the out-breath. That way you can monitor see what works best for you.
another option or another trick that now and then you can drop in if you wish, but not too frequently. Sometimes you can actually pause your breathing just to explore this sense of urgency. If it were your last breath, to experience yourself with air hunger, grasping, wanting the next breath. What if this were my last breath and the out-breath, there was no in-breath after that? What if you paused your breath? Use this sparingly, if, if at all. This could be my last breath. This could be my last in-breath. This could be my last out-breath. Now I would like you to uh, to reflect, drop in the question. What is one thing I'm taking today from this day long? One insight, one shift in perspective, one practice, something that perhaps has been an opening for me. There may be many. Choose one for you to remember. And thanking yourself in your heart, bowing to yourself or bringing yourself here and exploring, hanging in here at times might have been difficult or challenging for you. 
supporting yourself and supporting others through your practice, through your kind presence, giving your attention. I want to share with you is one more practice and that is the practice of at night when you lie in your bed it's a good time to think I may not wake up in the morning it's a great practice I've done it it can be quite awakening another one is in the morning just dropping in you know, we usually don't think, oh, this could be the day that I die. We, nobody thinks that, right? But what if, just dropping that, oh, that could be the day that I die. Ah, how can I live this last day fully with love, with presence, the best way I can, if this were the last day I die? And bring in ways for death, death contemplation into your daily life to keep this urgency, this immediacy of death, I appreciate the death contemplation paraphernalia. I appreciate your t-shirt, Avi. And I'm actually wearing my death contemplation t-shirt, which you can't quite tell because in the back there is a poem by Rumi, which I'll quickly share with you. In Farsi it reads, which means little by little, from this world of existence and non-existence, those who don't exist have departed, and those who do exist are catching up to. So I'd like to ask you now, in popcorn style, as we have just a couple of minutes left, three minutes left, if you would just share... Um, one thing you're taking home with you today, as I asked with you, asked you in the reflection. So shout it out, I'll repeat it. Something you're taking home with you. It's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. Peacefulness. Peacefulness. Community. Community. We all want to talk about death and there's so little space in this world for it. We all want to talk about death and there's so little space in it. And you can make the space for it. Be the person who makes the space with your friends and family. Thank you. Being curious. Being curious. Nice. Yeah. Focus on what matters. Focus on what matters. Yeah. Gratitude. If your aspiration, if you're, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? And how can you change that? Nice. If your aspired and actual obituaries don't match, why not? And how can you align them? Thank you. I love that. I love that. Any other last words? This is lovely. Yeah, please. 
can always um, write an obituary every time I want to let go of something. Ah, I can always write an obituary every time I want to let go of something. Nice. Thank you. I love that. I love that. That's a new teaching. <laughs> yeah. So thank you all. I want to thank you all for coming here and practicing. And let us dedicate the merit of our practice together. All the work, all the practice we've done interactively, in silence, every way, to dedicate the merit of the goodness of our practice to all beings everywhere. May they be happy, may they be free. May all beings everywhere be free. May all beings everywhere be well. That includes us. Thank you all. Wonderful to practice with you.